You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. First Kings chapter 19. We're currently in a series where we're studying through the books of First and Second Kings. We call this series Desiring the Kingdom. Something we love to do here at Whitefields. We love to study through books of the Bible. We feel it's a way that we allow God to speak to us on his terms. We get the whole counsel of that given book. And so we just love to go through the scriptures chapter by chapter. So right now we're going through the books of First and Second Kings. They cover a period of 400 years of Israel's history in which we really see a a decline and a turning away from God, but there are some bright spots in it. But more than anything, as we see the failures of human kings and human kingdoms, what what our hearts are drawn to, what our hearts are stirred up for is this desire for a true king and the true kingdom, which is to come, Jesus and his eternal kingdom. Specifically right now, we're in a section which I really enjoy. This is the section in which we're looking at the life of Elijah the prophet. So let's go ahead and begin this morning by praying over this text, and then let's get into it together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it speaks to us. Lord, thank you that you speak to us even today. And we want to come to you today, Lord, expectant, expectant and awaiting a word from you. Lord, help us to receive your word. Help us to put it into practice in our lives. Lord, may we hear your voice as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever felt discouraged? Don't raise your hand because I think it would be all of you. You can if you want. (laughs) Okay, so yeah, how many of you ever felt discouraged? I think right now during this time of COVID-19, I mean, I think people, a lot of people feeling pretty discouraged. How about depressed? Anybody ever felt depressed? How about unappreciated? Maybe you've at times in your life felt like, you know, here I am, I'm putting in all this effort, all this work, all this energy, but it doesn't seem to be making any difference at all. Nobody seems to notice, nobody seems to care. How many of you ever had this thought go through your head? You know, nothing I do matters at all. I could just disappear tomorrow and no one would ever notice. No one would miss me. In fact, you know what? Some people would probably be glad if I was gone. I would be doing them a favor. They'd be happier if I wasn't around because you know what? I'm just a nuisance. I'm a burden. I'm a problem for everybody. Listen, if you've ever felt that way, let me tell you this you're not alone. You're in really good company. In fact, I'll be honest with you. There are times in my life where I've had those exact thoughts go through my head. And maybe you have too. In our text today, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see Elijah the prophet. Even though he was a man of great faith, he struggled with those exact thoughts and feelings that you and I struggle with at sometimes too. He was so discouraged at this point in his life that he felt that he couldn't go on, that he didn't want to go on. He felt unappreciated. He felt like nothing he do, he did made any difference. It didn't matter to anybody. He felt unappreciated. He felt discouraged, and he wanted to quit everything. He even wanted to quit life itself. You know, the Christians in the Middle Ages, they had a term for this kind of experience. They called it a dark night of the soul. And that's the title of today's message, a dark night of the soul. You know, a dark night of the soul is a time of spiritual and emotional crisis in which a person is so discouraged, so depressed, so despondent that they question their faith in God and they feel like they don't even want to go on living. 
In the Bible and throughout history, we have examples of many people who, even though they believed in God, even though they followed Jesus, sometimes they struggled with discouragement, even depression. So what does the Bible have to say about that? What are the causes of this kind of condition? And how do we, how do we respond to it? What can we do when we find ourselves overwhelmed and discouraged and struggling? Well, in 1 Kings chapter 19, here's what we're going to see. That in Elijah's depression... The Lord ministered to him in ways which give us insight into our own moments of despondency and which point us to the greatness of Jesus and the hope of the gospel. Every week, here's what I do. I give you a sentence, and then we, we make that sentence our outline for the passage. And so here's our sentence for today, and we're just going to break that sentence down. We're going to study uh, this passage through that sentence. So go ahead and write that down. Maybe take a photo of it. Memorize it as we study through it. When somebody asks you later on, what'd you guys talk about at church? You're going to be able to tell them. In Elijah's depression, the Lord ministered to him in ways that give us insight into our own moments of despondency and which point us to the greatness of Jesus and the hope of the gospel. All right, let's check this out. In Elijah's depression, let's talk about this first. In Elijah's depression, chapter 19 begins with these words. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets with the sword. Now remember, what we're doing here is we're going through this book chapter by chapter. And so what this is referring to is something that happened in chapter 18, which we looked at two Sundays ago. See, here at this time, the people of Israel had begun worshiping a pagan god named Baal or Baal, but I'll pronounce it Baal because it's easier for me, right? Baal was thought to be the god who controlled the weather, the weather. And, and because most of the people in this area were farmers, they hoped that by worshiping Baal, that they could control the weather and guarantee themselves rain for their crops. The problem was, not only were the people turning their backs on Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, the true and living God, but the ways that Baal was worshipped were truly terrible. See, Baal was worshipped through the shedding of human blood. People would literally cut themselves and bleed on the altar in order to appease Baal. But, but even worse than that, Baal was worshipped through the offering of human sacrifices, and not just any human sacrifices, specifically child human sacrifices. People would put their little ones on an altar and they would be killed in order to guarantee that they would have rain for their crops. And the two people who did more to encourage the worship of Baal than anybody else in all of Israel were the king and queen of Israel themselves, King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And so what we've seen over the last couple chapters is that God has said, enough, this is sick, it's wrong, it's terrible, and God says this has to stop. And so in chapter 18, we saw that God said, I'm going to put an end to this once and for all, this ter these terrible practices and the worship of Baal. He wanted to show the people once and for all that Baal does not actually exist, that he's phony. He's not a real God. So they would stop making these terrible sacrifices. So they would turn their hearts back to him. And so in chapter 18, we saw that God told Elijah to go and do a big challenge, a big public event for everybody to watch and see a contest. And God sent during that contest an undeniable sign of his presence and of his power that everybody saw. And when that happened, the people who were watching, tens of thousands of people, they immediately realized that Baal is truly nothing and that Yahweh alone is God. And so they seized the prophets of Baal, we saw in chapter 18, and they brought them to Elijah. And Elijah executed justice by putting them to death for crimes against humanity. He did it right there on the spot. 
That's what's being referred to in chapter, uh, chapter 19, verse 1. Ahab, the king, he had been there on Mount Carmel when this took place. And even though King Ahab had been complicit in encouraging the worship of Baal, Ahab received mercy and grace. His life was spared. And so Ahab was allowed to go home. And he went home to his palace, which was in a place down valley called Jezreel. Jezreel is where he lived in his palace. And he went home and he told his wife, Jezebel, what had happened, about this sign from God, about how Elijah had executed the prophets of Baal. And look at Jezebel's reaction. Verse 2, Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. She's saying 24 hours and I'm going to kill you, Elijah. I'll give you a head start. You better run because I'm coming for you. Now, where is Elijah at this time? How did this message get to him? Well, if you look at the last verse of chapter 18, here's what you'll see. Elijah is in Jezreel. Why is he in Jezreel? He's standing in front of the gates of Ahab's palace. Now, why in the world would he do that? Here's why. Because Ahab had come to the king's palace expecting that just like everybody else on the mountain who had seen the sign from God, who had repented, who had given up the worship of Baal and turned back to Yahweh, that surely Ahab had done the same. He had seen the same sign that they all saw. How could he not repent and turn back to God? How could he not have a change of heart? And so here he is on their doorstep thinking, this is great. Look, this great sign has happened. I showed Ahab mercy. And now, you know, Ahab and Jezebel, he's going to tell her what happened. They're going to repent. And this is going to be the beginning of a beautiful friendship between us, a beautiful partnership. You know, the way it should be, where the prophets working together with the king to lead the people in the ways of God. Except that's not what happened at all. Instead, as the palace door opened, rather than receiving a hug, he was, he was handed a death threat. And he looked at that death threat and look at his response in verse 3. He was afraid. And he arose and he ran for his life and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. Clearly, Elijah was surprised by this response. He wasn't expecting this. He was expecting something different. And clearly, he was discouraged. Clearly, he was extremely disappointed. See, Elijah, immediately he goes and he runs for his life. In fact, he literally left the country. Remember, uh, if you saw that cheat sheet I gave you a few weeks ago, the country of Israel was divided into two kingdoms at this point. Israel in the north, that's where all of this had been taking place, in the northern kingdom. Well, there's the southern kingdom called Judah. So he leaves Israel, the kingdom of Israel, and he goes down south to the kingdom of Judah, to a different country. He goes to this place called Beersheba. Beersheba is commonly referred to in the Bible because it is the southernmost city in all of Israel. It's the southernmost city. So literally, he gets as far away as he possibly can. It's about 80 miles from Jezreel. Imagine walking 80 miles. It would take you about two days if you went there by foot. So Elijah's reaction here Let's just say, isn't this a little bit surprising? Isn't it a bit surprising? Because so far, everything we've read about Elijah, he has been courageous. He has been fearless. He's been faithful. He's been bold, right? In his prayers, in his words, in everything he's done. He has risked his own life several times as he has done what God called him to do. But now, suddenly, we see Elijah. It's like a whole different person. He's running away with his tail between his legs. 
How is it possible that this is the same Elijah who just in the previous chapter courageously stood his ground? In the chapter before that, again, stood his ground, said to the powers that be, you know, you can't do this. And now he's scared and running for his life. After leaving Beersheba, it tells us in verse 4 that he left his servant in Beersheba and he went further. He went a day's journey by himself into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Elijah's discouraged. Elijah's exhausted, both physically and emotionally and spiritually. He's drained after this huge event. He just did this big thing up on Mount Carmel, the showdown with the prophets of Baal. He, but here's the thing. He had expected that it would turn out one way, right? And isn't that so often the case? We expect that something's going to turn out one way. And when it doesn't, it, it can really throw us. And, and Elijah prays and he says, God, please just kill me. This is the same guy, right, who when he prayed and for three and a half years it didn't rain. This is the same guy who when he prayed, a child who was dead came back to life. In other words, he's good at praying, right? Like he's really good at praying. When he prays, it seems like God listens and stuff happens. And here in verse 4, we see him praying again. Except this time his prayer is a little bit different. This time it's, God, please kill me. Take my life. I want to die. I don't want to live any longer. Now listen, from our perspective, it's really easy to look at this. I mean, don't you kind of look at this and say, this doesn't make any sense. Why is he so upset? This situation isn't really that bad. Because think about this. This isn't even the first time that Elijah's received death threats. For three years, Ahab the king had tried to kill him. This should be par for the course. He's used to people trying to kill him. Why is he all despondent and depressed right now? But friends, doesn't this show us how quickly and how deeply even a man or woman of God can slip into depression? We look at Elijah and we say, he's got everything going for him. He's got everything to live for. What, what is this? Just this little setback and now he wants to die? What's going on? But guys, isn't that exactly it? It doesn't make logical sense because depression isn't about logic. It doesn't have to make sense. See, depression can have many causes, but logic usually isn't one of them, right? It can be caused by your body's chemistry. It can be caused by many things from exhaustion to diet to disappointment and expectations to the experience of grief and loss. And when, what, when you experience these things, what they do to you is they affect the way you feel and they, they create a lens through which you see everything else in life. C.S. Lewis put it this way in a, after the death of his wife. You know what he said? No one can see the world clearly when their eyes are full of tears. No one can see the world clearly when their eyes are full of tears. In other words, it distorts your perception of reality when you're grieving, when, when your eyes are full of tears. Listen, if you've ever experienced a dark night of the soul, you're in good company. There are many people throughout history who have loved God and been used by God, and they struggled with depression. Of course, we see the example of Elijah right here wanting to die, but you know there are others in the Bible. Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, he talks about a time in his life when he was so burdened that he says, I despaired of life itself. Martin Luther 
He struggled with depression throughout his entire adult life. In fact, at one point he wrote, he described it. He said, it feels like the devil is on my back trying to drive me into the ground. Mother Teresa, we all love Mother Teresa. I mean, everybody respects Mother Teresa, right? But did you know that the reason she chose the name Teresa was because of her struggle with depression? Because one of the people who coined the term dark night of the soul was named Teresa. And so when she became a nun, she chose the name Teresa because for her entire life, she struggled with depression. Charles Spurgeon, perhaps the greatest preacher in the English language, the great preacher of the London Tabernacle. He battled serious bouts of depression and despair. Here's one thing Charles Spurgeon said. He said, I am the subject of depression so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness. And yet, here's what I want you to see. All of these people we're talking about, in spite of their struggles, they never gave up hoping and trusting in the Lord. They never stopped clinging to Jesus, even in the midst of their struggles. You see, these people, if anything, they allowed their struggles to, and their depression, their discouragement, to drive them even more into the arms of Jesus because it made them hold tight even more to the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel that because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, he took our curse upon himself. He took what is broken in us. He took our brokenness upon himself. And because of what he did, dying for our, our sins, nailing them to the cross, the day is coming when depression and illness, when sadness are going to be gone forever, when the Lord will wipe away every tear from our eyes and we will be in his presence where there is fullness of joy forever. But listen to something Sp Charles Spurgeon said as he was talking about his own struggle with depression. I found this interesting. He said this, Let none of us sit down in misery and be content to be there. There is such a thing as becoming habituated to melancholy. My own tendency is sometimes to get in this state of mind, but by the grace of God, I do not allow it because I know that if I give way to this foolishness, it shall soon forge chains around me, which cannot easily break. You know, my heart truly goes out to those who are in that exact situation where it's not just that you struggle with depression from time to time, but you seem to find yourself held captive by it. Friends, I, I truly believe that God, by his grace, can set you free from those chains, that God wants to lead you into freedom and joy and hope and give you the light of life. So let's look at this next part of our sentence. In Elijah's depression, the Lord ministered to him. The Lord ministered to him in ways which give us insight into our own moments of despondency. The first way that God ministered to Elijah was by not answering his prayer. Did you notice that? What was Elijah's prayer? God, please take my life and kill me. And God said, nope, not going to do that. And you know what's even funnier to me is this. Elijah asked God to kill him. God not only said no, but God said super extra no. Because if in a few chapters from now, guess what we're going to find out? Elijah is one of the only people in the Bible who never died. God's like, take that, Elijah. Not only am I not going to kill you, I'm not going to let you ever die, <laughs> right? Guys, you know what? Sometimes it's God's grace in our lives 
that he doesn't answer our prayers, right? We thank God sometimes for those unanswered prayers in our lives, those things that we thought we wanted, thought we needed, but God, as a loving father, knew better. You see, God still had a plan and a purpose with Elijah's life. He wasn't finished with him yet. And friends, let me tell you this. If you're here and there's breath in your lungs, God isn't finished with you yet either. He has a plan and a purpose for your life. He's not done with you yet. The next way that God ministered to Elijah, we see in verse 5, it says, Elijah lay down and he slept under the broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. God sent him an angel. The word angelos, by the way, it literally just means messenger. So God sent him a messenger. I don't know if Elijah realized at the time that this was a messenger, an angel from God. Maybe it was only in retrospect later on that he realized it. But God sends him this angel who cooks him a meal. It says in verse 6, And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank, and then he lied down again. He's so exhausted, right? And an angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And it says in verse 8, He arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of the Lord to the, uh, for 40 days and 40 nights to the Mount of Horeb, the Mount of God. God ministered to Elijah, check this out, by taking care of his physical needs. See, God knew that what Elijah needed at this time was not a lecture. It wasn't a lot of correction. What Elijah needed at this time was some sleep. What he needed was a good meal. He needed something to drink. You know, sometimes, guys, when we're despairing and depressed, there can be a physical element to it. Right? Maybe you need to get better sleep. Maybe you need to eat a little bit better. Maybe you need to get some exercise. I'll tell you what, for me, this is my tendency. When I am exhausted, that's when I tend to fall into bouts of depression. Friends, listen, I'll say this. Taking care of your body is a spiritual discipline. Listen, I'll say it again. Taking care of your body is a spiritual discipline. God gave you a body, a mind, and a soul, and they don't function independent of each other. You're one being. They're interconnected. You know what? God could have done a miracle in Elijah's life. He could have snapped his fingers and made Elijah feel better by just doing a miracle and saying the word. But God chose to use these very ordinary, almost mundane things. He said, I want you to sleep. I want you to eat some food. I want you to do it again, right? Let's get you in a good pattern. But listen, that's not all that, he, that God did to minister to Elijah. In verse 8, it says that God led Elijah to Mount Horeb. Now, what God does for Elijah at Mount Horeb is something really incredible. And you're going to have to come back next week to find out what it was. You're going to have to come, but you're not going to want to miss it because it's really good. So next week, we're going to look at how God ministered to him at Mount Horeb. But listen, at Mount Horeb, here's what God's going to do. He's going to speak to Elijah, and he's going to point Elijah away from himself and point him back to God's purpose and mission for his life. You see, one of Elijah's problems, and this is common when, when we're depressed and discouraged and despondent, one of Elijah's problems, right? Right now is that he's completely focused on himself. Look back at verse 4. Did you notice it? I've had enough. It's nobody appreciates me. Nothing I do matters. I'm a loser just like all my fathers were losers, right? He's completely focused on himself. And let me tell you this. If you want to be absolutely miserable, let me tell you how to do it. Be absolutely focused on yourself. Be super introspective. Think about yourself constantly. Focus on your problems, your needs, your hurts, your pains, your desires. And you know what? You will be absolutely miserable. 
You know, we, we live in a society that encourages us. Focus on yourself. Think about number one. Take care of you. Do what you need to do for you, right? Self-care and all this stuff. And are we surprised that we live in a society that's increasingly seeing rates of depression? Listen, the more you focus on yourself, the more miserable you will be. One of the things that God does in order to help Elijah in this moment is that he helps Elijah get his eyes off of himself and get his focus back on his mission and his purpose and his calling from God, serving God and serving other people. And I'll tell you, the same is true. You know, we encourage everybody at this church to do two things. Get in a group and get on a team. Join a group, join a team. Well, listen, we, we encourage you to join a team, join a ministry team. We have ministries at the church. We have outreaches at the church. And we want you to get involved. Why? Because it's good, not only what you do for others, but it's good for you. You realize that? Jesus called himself a servant. And if you want to have the joy that Jesus had, you have to do the things that Jesus did. Chief among them is getting out of yourself and serving others. In order for us to have Jesus' joy, we need to serve like Jesus served to get our focus onto the mission of God and serving others and fulfilling his purpose for our lives. I want to give you two quick principles for dealing with a dark night of the soul. Two quick principles for dealing with the dark night of the soul. Number one, don't listen to yourself. Talk to yourself. Don't listen to yourself. Talk to yourself. Listen, all of us have something that doctors call self-talk. Self-talk is that running dialogue that's going in your head all the time. I bet you thought you're the only one who has that. No, everybody has that, right? You're talking to yourself. There's this constant dialogue in your head all the time, right? And, and your self-talk in your mind is one of the main battlegrounds where spiritual warfare takes place. It's where Satan likes to attack us the most. Jesus referred to Satan as the father of lies because that's what he does. That's what he loves to do. He loves to lie to us. The enemy of our souls, he wants to manipulate your feelings. He wants to manipulate your emotions and he seeks to plant ideas and thoughts in your minds that are destructive and push you away from God. It's those thoughts in your mind that seem to come from outside and they say things to you that are mean, right? You're like, hey, why am I saying these terrible mean things to myself, right? You're worthless. Everybody would be happier if you were gone. Nothing you do matters. No one really loves you. Are those things true? No. Are they from God? Absolutely not. They can contradict what God's word says. And so what do you do when you find yourself having these kinds of thoughts? Here's what you do. Rather than listening to yourself, talk to yourself. Speak the truth to yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul the Apostle, he instructs us to take every thought captive for Christ. Take every thought captive for Christ. To take your thoughts captive is to analyze your thoughts and say, you know what? This thought I'm having right now, it's not from God. It doesn't line up with his word. And therefore, I refuse to accept it. I reject it. I refuse to believe it. And rather than listening to yourself, you speak to yourself. David does this in the Psalms, if you read the Psalms. For example, Psalm 42. Three times in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, David says this phrase, Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? What is David, who's he talking to? He's talking to himself. He recognizes that he's cast down, that he's in turmoil. In these Psalms, he talks about crying all night long. He talks about feeling abandoned by God. And yet in spite of the ways he feels, David is choosing at the end of the day to speak to his heart rather than listen to his heart. And so he says, why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil, O my soul? And then he says, hope in God. 
for I will again praise him, my salvation and my God. We see this in other Psalms. In Psalm 103, David again is speaking to himself and he's commanding himself to do things. He's saying, self, bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not his benefits. He forgives your iniquities. He heals your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Rather than listening to himself, David is choosing to speak to himself, to talk to himself, to speak God's truth to himself. Listen, what would you do if you had a friend who most of the time lied to you, right? You had a friend, most of the time your friend lies to you. Would you trust that person's advice? Would you believe everything they told you? Would you do whatever they told you to do? Of course not. You'd be very hesitant. If you knew this person lies to you all the time, you'd be very hesitant to take their advice. You'd want to fact check the things that they tell you. You'd want to get a second opinion before you do what they tell you to do. Except that's not what most of us do. Because guess what? You do have a friend who lies to you all the time. It's yourself, right? As Antonio Damasio, he's a behavioral scientist. He has some, some TED Talks you can see online. Well, in his studies, he found that on average, the average adult makes 30,000 decisions a day, roughly. You make 30,000 decisions a day. And here's what's scary. 90% of those decisions are made emotionally, not logically. 90%. Now, that's really scary and really dangerous because he also shows us in, in his studies that our tendency as human beings is to go with how we feel, even if how we feel is not good for us. In other words, what, what they found is that most of the time, the way we feel, the way we perceive things is not accurate. Our feelings lie to us, but we follow them anyway. In other words, this saying, listen to your heart, is super bad advice. Guys, don't do that. That's bad advice. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, the heart is deceitful above everything else, desperately sick. Who can understand it? In other words, your feelings, your emotions, they can deceive you. They can mislead you. You can't trust them to give you an accurate picture of reality. How can we know what is true? If only, right? If only there was some sort of standard, something that, would, that we could refer to if we were looking for what is true all the time, that we could come back to and measure our thoughts and, and ideas against. And of course, guys, there is. That's what the Word of God is for us. It's our standard. It's our measuring tape. It tells us, you know, when, with all the opinions out there, with all the feelings that we have, it tells us what is true. We can measure everything against it. Listen, God's word says that you're valuable. It's God's word says that you are loved. God's word says that he has a purpose for your life. And it says that he is able to use even the hardships of your life and the tragedies in your life for good. He can bring beauty out of ashes. Listen, you may feel like God has abandoned you or that, or that God is, can never bring anything good out of your situation. But it's not true. Elijah felt that way. He felt like his work was in vain, that, that he was all alone. And it wasn't true. We're going to see that more next week as well. Rather than listening to yourself, you need to talk to yourself. And second one is this. Here's the other piece of advice. Act like you're at war because you are. Act like you're at war because you are. Listen, guys, this is a battle. And life and death are at stake. I have personally had family members and people I know who have lost this battle. Lost, they've lost their lives to this battle. It's no joke. There's a real enemy. Jesus told us that the enemy of our souls, he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. He will take as much as he possibly can. He wants to steal your joy. He wants to rob your time. He wants to destroy your life and take you down. 
In Ephesians chapter 6, we're told about this spiritual battle we're in against a real enemy who is taking aim at our minds and our hearts. If this is a battle, then act like it's a battle. Fight back. Determine that by God's strength, you're going to fight with all of his strength to do everything you can to not let the enemy have any more ground. And you're going to do everything you can by God's strength to take back the ground that has been lost. Fight for your mental and spiritual health. Build healthy rhythms, prayer, reading the Bible, fellowship, attending church, serving, giving, becoming outwardly focused. Listen, if it's a medical condition which requires treatment or, or medicine, you still fight, don't you? You still fight to trust in and cling to the Lord, to pursue him with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all of your strength. And here's the good news from, from neuroscientists, Dr. Daniel Ammon. He studies the human brain, and after 83,000 brain scans, 83,000 brain scans, he said the number one thing his research has shown him is that the brain can change through rote and repetition. What that means is that as we build these healthy rhythms into our lives, your brain chemistry can improve. There's hope. And so speak God's truth to your heart and act like you're at war because you are. And the good news is that Jesus has already won the victory for you. Listen, guys, in Elijah's depression, the Lord ministered to him in ways which give us insight into our own moments of despondency and which point us to the greatness of Jesus and the hope of the gospel. God gave Elijah three things. Rest, bread, and water. Jesus told us that he is the bread of life which has come from heaven, which has come down to satisfy your deepest hunger, to meet your deepest need, and to give you life. Jesus told us that he is the living water which quenches your deepest thirst and which gives you life everlasting. The book of Hebrews tells us that because of what Jesus did, you can have true rest in your soul. You can have rest knowing that your sins are forgiven. You can have rest knowing that God is pleased with you and satisfied with you, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus did for us. And not only that, but Jesus has given you his mission so that you can have his joy. Listen, the hope and the promise of the gospel is that because Jesus lived the life that we should have lived but couldn't, right? A life of perfect obedience to God. And on the cross, Jesus suffered the death that we should have died as judgment for our sins. Because he rose from the dead, defeating sin, death, and the devil, the promise of the gospel is that one day soon, there's a day coming when there will be no more depression. There will be no more sadness. Every tear will be wiped from our eyes. There will be no more sickness and no more pain. And that day is coming because of what Jesus did in his life, his death, and his resurrection. And the promise is for all. That promise is for all, everyone who puts their trust, not in themselves, but in Jesus and what he accomplished for you in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Listen, if that's you, then there is hope, even in the darkest night of your soul. And listen, if you want to have that hope, here's how to get it. By trusting in and clinging to Jesus today. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.